jump right into it because it's my determination to finish the book of Jonah this evening. Uh, that doesn't mean anything, but it's my determination to do that. Uh, plus, when, I, when we finish here this evening, I immediately have to leave and go to another part of the building and spend two hours with about ten men talking to them about marriage. So, got lots to accomplish before I get there this evening. So, we are in, as soon as I turn it on, we are in the book of Jonah. And this is where we left Jonah last week, vomited up on the beach. Good, good word to use right after you've finished eating, isn't it? In the middle of flu season and everything else. But that's exactly where we left Jonah last time we met. So we have about three more entries. If you'll remember, we have been going through a kind of a fictitious journal entry that Jonah might have written. And then we go through the text based upon that. And then we tear that text apart, and then we do some takeaways. So, let me hit really quickly. Here are the takeaways we talked about last week. The sooner you turn to God, the better. It's blunt, short, too sweet, to the point. But it's true, because otherwise, the children of Israel, rather than going straight into the promised land, wandered for 40 years. Jonah, instead of going straight to Nineveh, winds up as fish food at the bottom of the sea and then spit back out. It's just better the quicker you turn to him. If there's no other way, God will take us to the bottom and cause us to hit bottom to force us to look up. He really will. And sometimes that's exactly what it takes in our life is, is we hit something that all of a sudden we have absolutely no control over. There's absolutely nothing we can do. We're totally helpless. We're hit bottom, and then we have to look up. The problem is sometimes in our lives, people will keep raising the bottom for us, and we have to keep hitting lower and lower. And uh, so, we'll leave that one there. Sometimes, something that appears awful is actually a tool of God's mercy and deliverance. For years, I read the book of Jonah thinking how awful it was to get swallowed by a fish. But if he hadn't gotten swallowed by a fish, he would have drowned. He could not have gotten back to land. So, the fish that seemed to be such an awful thing was actually a means of deliverance. It was a submarine ride back to shore, if you will. And he couldn't have done that on his own. So sometimes the things that we think are so awful are really God's means of teaching us something. And you, it's hard to see that until after the fact. I can look back now on things that I just, I, I just thought were great catastrophes in my life. Now they don't seem that bad, but I can look back and see what God was teaching me from them. So that was a takeaway. Another one, when you run from God... He focuses on getting you back, not getting back at you. God does not need to get back at us. He holds all the cards anyway. So when he turns up the heat on us for something, it's his means of trying to get us back, not get back at us. God is gracious, he's merciful, and he offers us another chance even when we don't deserve it. And God does that. We've, saw, we've seen all through the prophecies. We've been reading the books of the prophets. And, and he just kept giving them a second chance and a second chance and a second chance. And he was patient and he was merciful long before Babylon ever came in and took them over. And so he is patient and he is merciful and he will give us a second chance when we don't deserve it. But though he offers us a second chance, the requirement for obedience is still the same. That doesn't change. I posted something to Facebook about Jonah, and, and it, it was the idea of a second chance at a first request. This is what Jonah gets. He gets a second chance to fulfill the first request, and that's kind of where we leave him tonight. So let's look at this journal entry, this fictitious journal entry. Jonah writ, might have written something like this. Well, I did it. I did what he wanted me to do. One message, one sentence, eight words, no more, no less. I never expected them to believe it. Why should they? They're a fierce and they're a violent people and I'm their enemy. So that's what makes what happened so weird. They listened. They believed. Every one of them, even their officials believed. Maybe it was because I still looked so ghastly. 
from after peeing fish food and vomited up on the beach. But it felt like something else was going on. Whatever it was, they turned and changed. Now what? That's all right. So let's look at this text. Turn to chapter 3 of Jonah. We'll start in verse 4. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Now, we left Jonah on the beach. The fish had vomited him out on the beach. God comes to him a second time, gives him the exact same message, the exact same task to do, and this time he heads to Nineveh to deliver the message from God. And so in verse 4 is where we pick it up. Jonah began to go into the city. It's an interesting phrase. He began to go into the city. He began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth and ashes, uh, excuse me, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Okay, then go down to verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and proclaimed through, and proclaimed through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. All right, let's tear this passage apart a little bit. It says that Jonah began, verse 4, he began to go into the city and it says he went a day's journey. Now, there's a lot of confusion in this passage uh, because we read somewhere else that, uh, that Nineveh is this great city and it's, the scripture seems to say it takes you three days to walk across it widthwise. But yet archaeology doesn't plan that out. So it's a, little, it's a little tough to get. But it seems to, it seems to reconcile itself this way. Jonah walks into the city and he's supposed to tell everyone in the city this message from God. So it's going to take him three days to kind of make all the city. Now, what it says here, though, is that Jonah began to go into city going a day's journey. Okay, and that's kind of interesting because if it takes three days to make your way all through the city and Jonah only spends a day doing it, you already get the idea that Jonah's heart may not be in this yet. I mean, you'd think after you'd been fish food that whatever God said would be okay. And he does obey God, but he's still dragging his feet. And he goes a day's journey in verse 4, and he called out this message. It's a really interesting message. Uh, it's eight words. Here's the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the whole message. Now you and I have studied like the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah and their prophecies are huge. I mean large books of prophecies. Interesting thing about this prophet, this prophecy was one sentence, eight words. That was it. It's like I told you before, this book is not so much about the prophecy as it is about the prophet. And so he goes one day journey where he probably should have taken three days to go through Nineveh and he delivers this eight-word sentence. And, and it's really interesting too. Uh, it says this, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he went in for one day. Okay, now 30 days later is when this prophecy is supposed to happen. Or 39 days, excuse me. 39 days later is when this prophecy is supposed to happen. That's interesting enough. But he says, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now the word for overthrown can mean just that. It can mean to overturn or to overthrow or to demolish. But it can also mean to turn, to change, to turn around. The word means all of those things. So which one do you think Jonah's hoping for? He's hoping for the destruction. Absolutely. And yet this word can also mean yet in 40 days Nineveh will turn. Nineveh will turn around. So he delivers this message for a day. 
And then he backs out to see what's going to happen. Now, verse 4, or verse 5, where it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for fasting and put on sackcloth and ashes from the greatest of them to the least of them. That's a summary statement. That's in summary, that's what happened. Verses 6 down kind of tell you exactly how that happens. And, and so it starts off with, uh, the summary statement says, they basically they believed God and they humbled themselves. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. And then they start calling for fast, putting on sackcloth and ashes. They humble themselves. That's a summary statement. How did that happen? Look at this. The word reached the king of Nineveh. This is how this came about. And he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then he issued the proclamation. Uh, it's kind of extreme, though, don't you think? Not only were the people to fast and not eat anything and drink anything for 40 days, or 39 days, but the animals we're not supposed to eat anything or drink anything for 39 days. Not only were the people to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes, the animals were too. Why? What? Doesn't that seem a little weird to you? Seems very weird to me. What do you think that's all about? And I'm just telling you right up front, I don't know the exact answer, so you're free to take a guess. Any ideas? Kind of hard to figure that one out. Go out there and get old Jersey the cow and cover her with sackcloth and ashes. And, and we don't know why. And, and part of it is a literary device to show how completely the city of Nineveh turned. I mean, they just didn't turn a little bit. They went 180 degree turn. And that's kind of a way of impressing upon us how, how radical this turn was. Another thing to remember, though, is that uh, they're very superstitious people. That could be one reason. They were very superstitious. Remember I told you before Jonah arrives on the scene, they had already been through two devastating uh, blights, diseases, if you will. They'd been through a solar eclipse. All of this had them rattled. And so they're very superstitious, so maybe that's why they went to such extremes. Or maybe they just thought, you know, we just need to cover all our bases. We need to just make sure. Uh, I have this dryer that has decided in the last several weeks to keep popping this thermal fuse inside of it. And the uh, first time it did it, I tore it apart, and, and they're not the easiest things to tear apart. And, and it's, you go through a whole lot of work to get in there to get one little piece, and you put that one little piece in, and then you got to go all the way back through it. And so I did that a few weeks ago, and then it blew again. And, uh, and part of me knows I just need to replace the little fuse. It's about $14. But the other part of me wants to be so sure I never have to tear this thing apart again. I want to replace the whole heating element for like $100. I, I want to overkill just to make sure this doesn't happen again. And I think this could be why the Ninevites just said, let's just cover all our bases. Let's just make sure nothing goes against us here. But, but that's what happens. That's how they respond to this statement. They believe God, they're humbled, and then they begin to make all of these changes. Uh, yes? You know... I don't know that for sure, but the scripture uses that a lot. 40 days and 40 nights was what? Noah. Yeah. We've read this in some of the other prophets too. Um, it's kind of a, it's like a fulfillment thing. You know, Noah went, the flood was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And so it's kind of like, okay, at the end of that, it's purged. You know, so it's, it, there's something about, kind of this completion, come to fulfillment, purging with those numbers. I don't know what the exact significance is, uh, but you hear that a lot, just like you hear three days and three nights. You hear this in Jonah, you hear this in the Gospels. So, and, and numbers were really significant to the Hebrews for lots of different reasons, and there's some people that have studied all of that. Uh, 
I feel like I need to figure out the, the main message first before I start digging into all the numbers. But uh, I, to me, as best I can figure, because I, I thought about that, I, I really do think it's just this is a fulfillment. This is a completion. This is a, a total purge, if you will. Um, and so they believe God and they're humbled, and they show that by what they do. They fast. They don't eat. They don't drink, they put on sackcloth, they put on ashes, and they force everything and everyone to do that. So it's a total turning. Uh, and it's all about turning. It's about them turning and God turning. Uh, and we'll see that in just a minute. All right, let's do some takeaways. Well, that was the take apart. Let's do the takeaway. Sometimes the simplest message is the most effective. We preachers and teachers somehow think that if we use more words, the more words you use, the better off you are. And it's not always true. It really isn't. Sometimes you think in a relationship or in a marriage that if I can just keep talking a lot, they'll finally get it. You know that. Some of you know that. The problem is, is if you keep talking a lot, the person you're talking to kind of glazes over and goes to the Bahamas or something, you know? Sometimes the simplest message is the most effective message. You know, Scripture talks about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, keep it simple. Uh, that's one thing I, I've told our staff before when they're writing stuff or putting stuff out for people. I tell them to write it like they're putting it on Twitter. Because on Twitter, they changed it recently, but it used to be you only got 140 characters. That's all you could get. And so you had to figure out how to say what you wanted to say very precisely, very succinctly, and you couldn't use more than 140 characters. That's hard. That's really tough. And so I've challenged our staff a lot of times to think in 140 characters so that they, they give the most simple and succinct message without all the flowery stuff. And... Uh, that's why you'll notice that if I preach, it's usually about 30 minutes. And you know why? Because I'm tired of hearing myself after 30 minutes, if you want to know the truth. And uh, so, so remember that in your interactions with people. Sometimes the simplest message is the most effective. Jonah's message was eight words. Just eight words. He didn't fill in anything. He didn't expound on anything. He didn't make anything flowery. Just eight words. Another takeaway. Sometimes those furthest from God wind up being more responsive to him than those who claim to be close to him. It's interesting. It really is interesting with Jonah. Uh, look at verse 8, the latter part of verse 8. Let everyone turn from his ways, from the violence that is in his hand. And then who knows... God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. So first of all, the people turn so that maybe God will turn. Now, does this sound familiar? Listen to this again. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. This is what the sailors said when the storm came up and they were trying to figure why it was coming up. Verse 6 so the captain came to him, Jonah, and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Listen to it. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It's the same kind of thing. So I find it interesting in that passage, chapter 1, these pagan sailors are having to tell Jonah to pray so that maybe God will relent. Now, in chapter 3, the pagan Ninevites are saying, we need to pray so that maybe we'll relent. Maybe God will relent. Notice the pagans are always trying to turn God's wrath away. Jonah wants it to come. He's, he's not praying that God will relent. So, sometimes those furthest from God tend to turn around and do the very thing that we should be doing since we're closer to God. And yet we don't. If, I'll give you a great example of this. 
not a great example. I'm not even sure it's an example of this, but I thought of this Tuesday night, last night. I wonder how many of us watched the State of the Union address and prayed rather than fussed or cheered. You know? Did we talk back to the TV about what was going on in our country? Or did we talk to God about what was going on in our country? Because we're supposed to be the ones that are interceding for our country. And yet there seems to be a whole lot of others that are not that close to God that are just scrambling trying to fix something that we should be doing. Now, enough of that soapbox. Another takeaway. Leaders set the example and the pace for those they lead. The, it was the king who got up and repented. It was the king who put on sackcloth and ashes. It was the king who started the fast. And he sat the pace for everybody else, or set the pace for everyone else. And that's what we need. We need leaders who will set the pace. And you may think, well, that's for leaders. I'm not a leader. You absolutely are a leader to someone in some area of your life. And you have to set the pace. If people look at you, if people watch you, if people listen to you, then you are a leader. Because a leader is simply someone who has influence. Leader is someone who has influence. And everyone in this room has influence with someone or someones. So you're a leader. So you have to set the pace, set the example. One more takeaway, and then we'll move on. In the end, God wants just three things from us. Just three things he wants from us. He wants us to completely believe him. He wants us to humbly turn to him, and he wants us to fully obey him. Those three, that's what he wants. This is what he wants. And Jonah's just having trouble with this. He really is having trouble with this. And even when he does it, he doesn't like it. And we'll see more about that in a minute. So those are the three things God wants. If you ever find yourself saying, I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do. These are it. Everything else will work itself out. All right. Let's do another journal entry, and we'll do another passage of Scripture. Jonah might have written something like this. He spared them. Can you believe it? He spared them after all the hurts they caused, after all the harm they've done, after all the rebellion. He spared them. How could he do this? I thought he was supposed to be someone who upholds justice. And yet they got off scot-free. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. That's it. I am done. I should have died at sea. Now, that's not too far off from the text. Let's look at the text. Start in verse 10 of chapter 3. Okay, so, so the Ninevites have repented. They've fasted. They've prayed. They've done the sackcloth and ashes. They believed what God said. And they're hoping that they can turn God's heart at the end of 40, 39, 40 days. So we get to the end of that. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay. Go down into verse 4. Yes. Okay. In where? Verse, verse 10. Okay. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked ways, they are not obeying God, they are obeying the king. So have they really had a change of heart, or is it just the king that spared them? Well, but that's no different than in, uh, in the Old Testament when David would declare something and all the people would follow. David was responsible. He was, he was the figurehead. Kind of like, as the king goes, so does the country. And, uh, and so David was the spokesperson for God, basically. And so when they obeyed David, they were obeying God in, in kind of a secondary fashion. Same way with Ninevites. The only difference was they had lots of different gods. So he kinda, the king kind of said, this is what we're going to do. And, and it's really interesting that it says when, he saw, when they, he saw what they did. 
because it's subtle and we can read over that really easily, but repentance is about turning. It's about change. And so repentance is not repentance unless something about what you do changes. You, you know it's repentance when you see it in the deeds. And that's really important. We'd like to separate those two, but you can't. If you really repent, that means you're turning and you're changing. You're having a change of heart, a turn of heart. Well, that needs to play itself out in what you do and how you do it. And so, yes, what, what God saw was he saw them repenting. You know, and, and although I don't think it's absolutely the best reason to give your life to Christ because you just don't want to die and go to hell. Still a good reason. Got my attention anyway. Absolutely. She asked, do, you, do I think that God reaches and deals with each one of us in our understanding of who he is? And I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe God will reach you however you need to be reached. I, I just, I believe that wholeheartedly. I think he'll take you wherever you're at and deal with you wherever you're at. And uh, that's why I think, that's why w when God works a lot in the Middle East, he does it through dreams because that's really important to the people over there. So that's how he deals with them. And uh, yes, I, I really do believe that. Because uh, I had no background in church I didn't go to church. I was 21 years old and didn't know anything about any of this. So he couldn't have reached me, if you will, through Scripture. He had to do it some other way. Um, yeah, I believe that. And, and, you know, if all they knew is God is in control and he's going to torture us if we don't listen to him and turn and repent, that's enough. They had to operate on what they knew. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain that said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. Because those are the ones I'm responsible for. So if I know this much, I'm responsible for this much. If I know this much, I'm responsible for that much. And so, yeah, I do think that's, that's how he does it. Uh, okay, anyway, let's go on. Uh, verse 1, chapter 4. Let's go back to 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse four, 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? It's an interesting little interchange between the prophet and God, isn't it? Let's see if we can take this apart just a little bit. Okay, God's response to Nineveh is that he relents. He repents of what he's going to do. He relents. That word relent, here's what that word means. It means to console or comfort oneself. Coupled with the root to sigh and breathe strongly. So think about it. Forty days, God's waiting and he's watching and he sees them repent and he goes, Whew. it's over. I don't have to do this. This is what I wanted to start with. And he breathes this sigh of relief. That's what that word relented means. He didn't just say, okay, they followed the rules, so I won't do it. 
he let out this big sigh. It's like, you know, if you've ever been in a movie and when things get real tense and it gets right on the edge and you find yourself holding your breath and when it's over, you go, that's what God did. He relented of that. That's his response to the Ninevites. Now, Scripture juxtaposes that with Noah, uh, with Jonah's response. God breathes a sigh of relief and is grateful. But in the first word in verse 1 of chapter 4 is but. So what it's doing is setting God's response up against Jonah's response. And Jonah's response is just the opposite. He's displeased. That word displeased means to be full, to be broken, to be spoiled by breaking apart, to make good for nothing. And he was exceedingly, the word exceedingly, it talks about to to raise up red hot, to glow red hot. He was furious. God's rejoicing that he doesn't have to destroy Nineveh, and Jonah is ate up with anger. He's glowing red hot with anger. He can't, he's spoiled with anger. He can't do anything else. He can't think anything else. Have you ever been there? Where all you can think of is how angry you are. And that's all that really matters to you. And you keep thinking of more things that keeps that anger burning and going. And the longer you do it, the angrier you get. Until no one can talk sense to you because you're not logical. You're just angry. I won't ask for a show of hands, but... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, and and, and here, here's the weirdest thing ever. What is Jonah's complaint? He complains about God's character. And what is his complaint about God's character? His complaint is this. His complaint is you're gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Relenting in disaster. How dare you? That's exactly what he's doing. You are a dirty, rotten forgiver. I can't believe you would be that way. He is mad and angry about God's character. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. That graciousness, that forgiveness, that patience, that loving kindness, it didn't seem to bother him when he was in the belly of a fish. Right? And, and we think that's pretty short-sighted of Jonah, but we're all that way. I mean, we like it. <laughs> we like it when our enemy loses his job, but we love it when we get to keep ours. You know? Um, we love grace and mercy as long as it's coming towards us. But if it's going to someone we don't think deserves it, we don't like it as much. And this is what God is trying to point out to Jonah. And actually, it's a message for all of Israel. Because remember what Israel's job was when they were first formed way back with, with Abraham? They were be God calls Abraham, says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And yet Israel, somewhere along the way, decided, well, that means we're God's favorite. So we're just going to kind of huddle up in a circle and let the rest of them burn. And and so Israel begins to turn inward instead of turn outward. This is what Jonah's doing. He's turning inward instead of outward. And so now he is furious because God didn't destroy them. And he said, I knew you were going to do this to start with. That's why I didn't want to come. That's why I ran. I knew you're a dirty, rotten forgiver, and you're going to forgive my enemies. And how dare you? It's exactly where Jonah is at with all of this. Uh, If you have a sibling... And you both get in trouble. But your sibling seems to get off free. Now you know what we're talking about. That's exactly what we're talking about. And and 
This, Jonah just couldn't swallow this anymore. Uh, so God has to respond to Jonah. Now, Jonah's already said, you forgave them, they're not going to be perished. I, it's better off if I just die. I'd rather be dead than this. I mean, it's very dramatic. Uh, and, and so Jonah would rather die. He, he's completely overtaken with this anger until he's not making sense anymore. He saw it as completely unfair. And, and so he just wants to die. And so here's God's response to him. And I love this. Simple response. Do you do well to be angry? Would you love that? I was, in a, I was in a meeting one time years and years ago. I can't even remember who the meeting was with, but, but the guy in the meeting was breathing fire. He was angry. He was insulted, and, and he was just way over the top. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you know you might as well not say anything because you're not going to get a word in it anyways, and he's just blazing at me. And when he got done, I looked at him and I said, you sound really angry. That's all I said. And it was like it threw him for a loop for a minute, and he, well, yeah, I am. And, and everything kind of came. I love that. Where else in Scripture do you see this kind of response from God? In your home? Look at Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 4. It's the same thing that's happening in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. God, for some reason, receives his brother Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. doesn't say that he was rejecting the people. He just said he rejected the offering, Cain's offering. And Cain gets angry the same way Jonah did. And look at uh, Genesis 4, starting in verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, here's the same kind of response. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires, it's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Kind of similar type of response. Do you do well to be angry? Which when someone responds that way, it tends to make us even more angry. You know? Uh... Yeah, I'll save that story for later so we can get it done. Uh, so, why ask the question? When it comes to anger, God wants us to be aware of a few things. He wants us to be aware, one, that we are angry. Sometimes we don't even realize it. Maybe it comes on us quicker than we realize. Maybe it sees longer. I've had people in my counseling office, and, and we'll be talking about something, and, and I see it there. The veins in their neck start sticking out, and they flush red, and you see them gripping the arms of the chair. And I'll say, you look really angry. And they'll say, no, I'm not. Not a clue. Don't know it. And you can't do something about something you don't realize. So God would have us to be able to realize that we're angry. So God says, hey, do you do well to be angry? It's kind of like pointing it out. God would also have us figure out what that's all about. I mean, one, first you've got to recognize it. And second, you've got to realize what it's about. What is making you angry? I was watching a, a sitcom one night, a long time ago, and, or a movie or something. I was watching something, and I found myself, all of a sudden I just got up and said, I can't watch this anymore. And stormed out of the room. It was like a sitcom or something, you know. I don't, and, and I thought, later after I kind of calmed down, I thought, well, that's weird. What's that all about? And so I tried to figure out what made me so angry. And then I finally, as I dug in a little bit, I finally realized it was a character on this show was acting just like somebody I knew that I was having great difficulty with. Didn't have a clue in the moment. I just thought, I'm done with this. I'm not watching this anymore. But that's what that was about. So not only does God want us to realize we're angry and understand what it's about, but he wants us to understand how harmful that can be. Man's anger does not fulfill the righteousness that God desires, according to Scripture. It's not that it, we can't be angry. Scripture tells us we can be angry, but it says sin not, which is really hard. You can be angry about something, but how you respond to your anger is where the danger lies. And this is what 
God is trying to get to Jonah in this simple little sentence, do you do well to be angry? All right, so let's do some takeaways. God is genuinely relieved and rejoices when the enemy turns to him. (laughs) But are we? Or do we secretly hope that they get what's coming to them? And most of us would say, well, I would never do that. Unless your candidate doesn't get picked for president. And then you kind of hope he fails so you can prove that you were right. No matter whether what party it's from. If it's not yours, then it's the same deal. God just wants them to get it right. You and I, even if your candidate never gets picked, you and I would be a whole lot better off rooting for the person that's in there, praying for the person that's in there, than we would hoping they fail. Because you know, if they fail, we do too. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like I tell couples in counseling, you know, whether you like it or not, you're on the same team. So if your partner fails, you fail too. So you better be rooting for them. I tell it to them every night when I'm watching the news, but they just don't listen. I don't understand. Uh, but it really is true. We get we. Washington is not only is not the only place where people divide up sides. They just aren't. We do it everywhere. We do it in homes. We do it in marriages. We do it in churches. We do it everywhere, and. God wants our enemies to turn to him, and he rejoices when they do it, even when we don't. All right, another takeaway. Our anger can turn us to more anger or more trust in God. The choice is ours. The choice is ours. Your anger can point you away from God or it can point you to God, and you get to choose. You may think you don't, I'm just angry. I I just can't help myself. Absolutely, you can help yourself. You have all the fruit of the Spirit. You get to choose what you're going to do with your anger. And, And besides, you wouldn't buy that from your children. You tell them something they don't like, and they just get angry, and they haul off and kick you in the shins. I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. You just made me angry. No, I think you can help it. Right? It's the same way for us. And this is what God is doing with Jonah when he says, do you do well to be angry? He's trying to get across to him, look, you have some choices here to make. Same thing he did with Cain. Another takeaway. Hello. There we go. Don't just assume your anger is righteous, which is really easy to do. I have a right to be angry. Don't just assume that. Admit your anger to God. Ask him to help you examine it, what the root is. And uh, the danger of nursing it. Because you know what? Even if you have a right to be angry, if you keep nursing it, it's going to do you no good. It really is. Probably several of you in here know angry people in your life. And you can tell them, boy, the sky's a pretty blue today, and they'll be angry about something. You know, it's just, it's because they've nursed it for so long, it just becomes rooted becomes the root of bitterness that Scripture talks about. All right, have I meddled enough? Let's go on one more. Let's finish this book. Here's the last fictitious entry in Jonah's journal. I'm sitting here just east of the city, and I'm waiting to see if he might still give them what they deserve. He's rooting for for destruction. He wants to see them go down. It's like the guy that goes to a hockey game just to see a fight break out. That's what he's hoping for. I can't believe that he would let them off the hook. And then ask me if I have a right to be angry. Especially after all they've done. And this heat. Even after putting up a shelter to block the sun, it's still sweltering. He goes on to write this. I was beginning to think he was going to not let, he was going to let up. It looked like he was going to give me a break. He provided this shade for me, this big leafy plant, and I was getting comfortable. And then he took that away too. And this wind, it's so unbearable. At least dying at sea would have been cooler. He 
wants to know if I have a right to be angry. Well, of course I do. Isn't he paying attention? What? Feel sorry for them? How am I supposed to answer that? How am I supposed to do that? Let's look at the text this comes from. Chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. Now remember, he only went into the city for about a day, and then he bailed out. And he goes like across from the city, and he sits down to watch and see what will happen. He sat on... Uh, he made a booth for himself, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's still hoping that God will give them what they deserve. He's still hoping God will just torch them like Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and it made it, made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. This is another one of the miraculous things that happens in Jonah. There is a, a plant that, that grows up quickly, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but not that quickly. So that's another one of those miracles. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Hear the irony? He was exceedingly angry because God didn't destroy them. He was exceedingly glad for a plant. Why? Because the plant gave him comfort. Saving Nineveh did not give him comfort. Verse 7, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed, not happenstance, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than live. Uh, this is about the third time in the book of Jonah. Third time in four chapters that Jonah's wanted to die. You know. Uh, and God just keeps him alive just to prove it to him. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Here's God with another one of those questions. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's a, I would love to have been a part of that discussion or at least witnessed that discussion. Let's tear this text apart real quickly because we, we don't have a whole lot of time. So the text in Jonah, start with verse 5. Jonah goes out of the city and he sets down hoping for something bad to happen. And, and, he, and he's waiting. I mean, it's not just he's hanging around for a day or two. He's waiting for the 40 days to be completed. He is that angry and he's that hopeful they'll get torched. That he'll set it out for 40 days just hoping to see what he wants to see. That's anger. That's hoping somebody gets what they deserve. And, and I see this a lot with people who were sexually abused as children. They're still hoping that their abuser gets what they deserve. And, and I agree that they deserve it. But their anger starts to destroy them instead of their abuser. And here's the thing. Nineveh's kind of out of the picture now. They've already turned. God's already, it's Jonah's a problem now. Jonah's just as angry as the Ninevites were. He's just as destructive as the Ninevites. All of a sudden, he focused so much on them, he became like them. Do you have somebody in your life you just keep focusing on? And you're so angry and frustrated with them, you just keep focusing on them? Because if you do, you're going to wind up like them. How many of you grew up saying, I never want to be like my parent? And lo and behold, you are. It's because you keep focusing on something. So this is what's happening with Jonah. And, and so he obeyed God. He did what he was told to do. But his heart was so far from doing it. Been there, done that? You know, I, I don't think we get any points for obeying God when we're complaining about doing it in the process. 
you know. No, he didn't. I mean, the text tells us that to really make the whole city and make that declaration would have taken him about three days, and he took one day and he was done. He didn't. He, he didn't want it. He obeyed, but mainly because he got vomited out on the beach and didn't want to go through that again, right? Um, and so he, he obeys, but his heart is still hard and he's still angry. And and then there's this plant. Now, if you read commentaries, they think it's probably the castor bean plant, and it supposedly grows up really quick and is very leafy, but it still wouldn't grow up this quickly. But there's this plant that comes up, and, and the castor bean plant will reach about 12 foot high and, and just really leaf, leaf out and provide a lot of stage, shade. Uh, and Jonah's more overjoyed with his shade than the fact that 120,000 people are not going to be burnt. You know, seems really illogical to us, but when you're in that kind of anger, nothing makes sense. No, nothing makes sense. And so Jonah starts to get comfortable because he's got shade on his head and he's got kind of a nice seat now to watch the destruction. And then God sends this worm to destroy the plant. So isn't it interesting that in the first part of the book of Jonah, there's this fierce storm and there's this big fish to try to get Jonah's attention. At the end of the book, there's this worm and a hot wind. And he's still trying to get Jonah's attention. And so here comes this worm. Uh, it destroys a plant. Sun starts bearing down on his head and he gets mad. He's pouting. Uh, he, he's just wrapped up in himself. And he says for a third time, I, it'd just be better if I died. I would just rather die. And this is a good reason why I'm not God, because I'd have probably said, I can grant that wish. You know? Uh, but God is patient, and he's merciful, and he's gracious, like we read before, so he doesn't do that. And, and the point God's trying to make is, look, you show pity for the loss of a plant, but you're not showing pity for the loss, the potential loss of all these people. I don't, I don't care whether they're your enemy or not. They're people, and, and you don't show pity for them. Something's out of whack with that. Something's out of whack with that, and that's what God's trying to get across to him. And then, on top of all of this, the book just ends. I mean, it just, bottom just drops out. It says something about cattle, and it's done. You know, it's like reading a book and then getting to the end and find out somebody ripped the last five pages out, and you don't know how it ends. It's exactly what happens in the book of Jonah. Let's do some takeaways. You can obey God and still have a darkened heart. You can obey God and still not like it. You can be told to clean up your room and you can still be grumbling and throwing stuff around. You know? And if you do that, don't come out of your room and say, look what a great job I did. It doesn't count. You don't get no points for that. So, but the two can coexist together and, and one cancels out the other. Obedience is not just the only thing God's after. Another takeaway. Personal provision apart from God will never be enough. It never will be enough. I wrote a post here a while back that said, if you put your hope in temporary things, then you have a temporary hope. Jonah's excited about a plant that keeps shade on his head. Plant doesn't last. You know, your provision apart from God will never be enough. Beware of putting personal comfort ahead of God's desires. That never works well. I remember when God was dealing with me about going into the ministry, and I'm, I wasn't just dragging my feet. I was kicking and screaming about it, actually. 
And I was walking one day, I may have told you the story, and I'm walking through my neighborhood one morning, and God and I are having this discussion all for about the umpteenth time about what I need to do and what I'm doing. And, and I kept looking and saying, you know, look at this house. They have this nice motor home and this boat, and, and, and they've got a really great life. And I could do this and just be a better deacon and teach more Sunday school and, and just be really faithful in church and, and still have the stuff, basically. Uh, and I swear it was as if God said, yep, you can do that, but you'll never be satisfied. That's what this is about. Putting your personal comfort ahead of God's desires, it just won't work. Another takeaway. God leaves the conclusion of our story up to us. I believe that's why the book of Jonah just drops out and suddenly, starkly ends and you don't know what happened. Because it's up to Jonah. And you know what? Right now, from this point forward, how your story ends, it's totally up to you. It really is. From this day forward, you get to have a say-so in what people say when they walk in front of your casket. Right? Because you don't know how your story is going to end yet either, just like you don't know how Jonah's ended. Hmm? You have a closed casket? I'm going to walk by and knock on it. I mean, your story's not done until that point, and that really will sum up what your story was about. And here's the deal with Jonah. Because it ends this way, we don't know if Jonah ever got it or not. God is still having this face-to-face, hey, why are you so angry? And we don't know if Jonah's turned or burnt in his own anger. So, you know what you want people to say when they walk by your casket, don't you? What's that? He moved. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, I probably don't have this time for this story because it has nothing to do with this book. But um, No, I'll save it for another time. But I really want you to hear that. I, I really, with everything that Jonah teaches us about ourselves, because we are more like Jonah than we want to admit, the one thing it does teach us is the story's not done yet. And you get to control how the rest of the story goes. So you take what you learn in the book of Jonah and you apply it to the rest of your story. We don't know how he did it. But you can know how you do it. All right, we need to close. Any questions? Any comments? Because we're done with Jonah. We're moving on to Micah, I believe it is, next week. Yes? Jonah stayed in Nineveh. Oh, yeah? ISIS destroyed Jonah's tomb? It's kind of a ironic, poetic justice, isn't it? Someone else? Comment or question about Jonah? Yes. Hang on just a minute. Well, the land is still there. It changes hands. It changes names. I don't even know exactly where that is right now, but it's still there. But the nation of Nineveh is no more. And, uh, and, and we kind of think we, because uh, we're Americans, right? We kind of think we're going to last forever. And there's no guarantee that that's going to happen either. It depends upon how we respond. Now, the thing about Nineveh is, yes, they repented, they turned to God, and Later on, when the heat was off, they just fell backwards again, and God wiped them out. But it's the same thing that God did with the Israelites. You know, they'd straighten up for a while, and then they'd slump. And they'd straighten up for a while, and then they'd slump. And God kept giving them chance and chance and chance. So it's, we need to be really careful about our arrogance about being Americans or Russians or Israelites or whatever. We just need to do what we're supposed to do. Say, I'm sorry, say it one more time. Oh, oh yeah, boy, I hope I can repeat that, you know, because I don't listen to what I say. Um, if you put your hope in temporary things, then all you have is a temporary hope. 
It really is. And, and that's not some brilliant idea for me. That's something that's jumped out from the Gospels when I was studying the other morning. All right, we are at time. We need to go. Lane needs to set up for men's conference tonight. We will open Micah next week. Glad you were here. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for this book, and uh, I'm grateful that you will use the stubbornness and the anger and the rebellion and the disobedience of people to teach us about our own selves and our own stubbornness and our own rebellion and our own anger. I'm grateful that the Bible doesn't wash, whitewash things, but it really just shows us the good, bad, and the ugly. And we fit in that continuum somewhere. And we need to realize that you are God. You get to do what you want to do, which is mainly save and redeem mankind. And we need to be a part of that plan. And we need to trust your sovereignty rather than fussing when you don't do what we think you should do. Every one of us has something to take away from this book and implement into our lives. Pray that you'll show that and help us to do that. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.